The Progress Report is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and there's a new pod out on the network that I want to talk about, and it's the latest from Habib T. Please. Hosts Nashwa Khan and Shadi Ali interview Vincent Bevins, the author of the book The Jakarta Method. And that's actually a book that I'm reading uh, right now, and it's really interesting. And it's all about how the kind of murderous anti-communist violence of 1960s Indonesia was instrumental in shaping the world we have today. Get exclusive supporter-only content and just go and support a great project at harbingermedianetwork.com. Now, on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to The Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. We're recording today here in Amiskwichiwaskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory on the banks of the Kasiskasa Wanasipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today is a human of many talents and someone who I am a big, big fan of and I'm very pleased to have him on the show. Uh, we've got Sean Carlton, history professor at the University of Manitoba, as well as an editor at activehistory.ca and an editor and columnist at Canadian Dimension. Sean, welcome to The Progress Report. Hey, thanks for having me. So I don't know what your exact kind of term was at Mount Royal, but I did graduate from there. That is my alma mater. I don't know if you ever crossed, uh, if we would have ever kind of seen each other in the hallways. Like I graduated in 2008, but uh, did, did, did we miss each other? We did. Yeah. I started at, at Mount Royal um, in 2016 and I was there until just last summer in 2020. I really enjoyed my time there though and, uh, and being in Alberta and uh, made lots of friends and, and comrades out that way. It is a fun, uh, weird little kind of commuter campus out there in the Southwest. Um, you know, I was there right as it was transitioning to a university and they were like, do you want to stick around and get like a real bachelor's of communications? I was like, nah, nah, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. It's not like journalism is not something where you need. It's not like you're not an engineer. It's like the credential is pretty incidental. So. But uh, it was it really was a shame that you left Alberta for the uh, the sunny climes of Winnipeg, uh, Manitoba. But uh, you know, as a professor, I'm moving around is kind of par for the course, right? It is, yeah. Well, uh, so you know, I, I want to thank you for coming on first of all, and just to give a content warning to to the folks that are listening, we are going to be talking about genocide, both historical and ongoing. We are going to be talking about residential schools, as well as people who kind of like deny the uh, facts and the impacts around residential schools. So if that is going to bother you, if you're going to be, um, um, if that is not going to be a fun experience for you to listen to, don't listen to it, but just a content warning off the top. But the the way I think I want to get into the conversation, Sean, is uh, a quote. And, you know, I found this quote online from a leftist podcaster. um, But I don't know, I I think this aphorism is kind of very useful and can be applied to a lot of different contexts. And it's, once you learn a sufficient amount of history, you must choose to become either a Marxist or a liar. <laughs> and uh, like, there must be like a, like a Canadian history version of that one, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the best way that I can describe it, I think, is that once you, once you learn um, the, the non-whitewashed, patriotic, propaganda version of history, kind of used to whip up Canadian nationalism, it's kind of hard to continue to be constantly tethered to kind of a toxic nostalgia. And, and so, you know, with a different version of history, you know, you, you begin to see yourself and your relationship to these lands and, and the original peoples of them very differently. Um, and I think that that's in many ways what 
non-Indigenous people are, are reckoning with, certainly since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's final report, but also in the wake of, of recent events. Yeah, I mean, I think you know most countries are fake, and a country like Canada is is especially fake, especially when the like signifiers of like you know what is Canada, what we think Canada is, were mostly kind of created out of whole cloth in the like fifties and sixties by like the Liberal Party of Canada. You know, it's it is a uh, you know that we just did an episode on maple washing with um, Luke Savage, writer with Jacobin, and, and the history there is a is a of Canada's Canada's own weird sense of cultural exceptionalism is is another podcast in and of itself, and we did it already. But I mean, the reason why I brought you on, Sean, is because you know the, the discovery of the mass grave of 215 children found at the Kamloops Indian Indian Residential School. Um, you know, this is obviously a tragedy. You know, Canada is mourning. This is making international news. And, you know, this is the first of what I expect to be many more mass graves of this nature that will be found, you know, across Canada and especially here in Alberta, considering how many residential schools there were here. Um, and, and before we get into like, you know, who the odious people are that are defending this, I think it's 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 appropriate to set aside set aside a bit of time and space to kind of reflect on what this kind of means to us as two settlers, you know, as a as a white person to have to sit down and think about what it means that, you know, I live on land that was cleared for my purpose by putting indigenous children in mass graves. And like you and I are a part of this, right, Chum? Yeah, it's an, an uncomfortable realization. Um, that, you know, residential schools are part of the larger project of colonization and nation building uh, that, that brought many non-Indigenous people um, to these lands. And I think, you know, the, the realization that this is, this is both not about our community, uh, but is very much connected to the history of our communities, um, you know, can be an unsettling one, but it can also be an opportunity to kind of reflect and as I was saying earlier, change the way that you see yourself um, in in these territories. Exactly. Uh, and I think it's something that a lot of white people and a lot of settler folks are starting to kind of sit down and have this kind of self-same conversation, right? Like, uh, you know, utter normies, like people who, you know, what ran Don Iveson's campaign are like, Canada Day was my favorite holiday. And now I don't think I'll be celebrating it. And, and, and we're going to get into that later. But like, you know, the conversation amongst yourselves, like my family and my dad specifically has kind of done the digging on like our ancestors. And like, it, it's it's a very common story, right? Like my father's side of the family fled England for North America, you know, three, 400 years ago, you know, religious extremists, uh, kind of who came over pretty early on in the colonization project. And they were big, dumb, strong Protestant farmers and lay preachers who, you know, were always willing to move west to get, quote unquote, you know, free land. And there are Kinneys and Olmsteads and the Dakotas and Manitoba, Saskatchewan, all over Western Canada and the Midwest. And even on my mom's side, like, there were immigrants from England, but like, even then, you know, they still benefited from the fact that you know, what Canada is, what Canada was, was created to benefit, you know, people like them, right? Absolutely. I mean, and I would imagine, like many of your listeners, my story uh, is is different but quite similar. You know, colonization has shaped a lot of my own family's history. Uh, I'm English and Irish, 
So, uh, you know, th th those tensions, right? Uh, England uh, uh, learned how to colonize around the world first uh, at home uh, in terms of its expansion uh, into Wales and Scotland and, and in particular Ireland. Um, and then the conditions of, of British imperialism uh, in, in part of where my family is from, uh, you know, created the conditions where they, they sought uh, to, to, to move elsewhere to create a better life for themselves and their families. And they did so by then, you know, joining the colonial project here in, in Canada, um, particularly in Western Canada, in, first in Saskatchewan, Alberta. Uh, and then my family um, uh, traveled to the West Coast in British Columbia, where, where I lived and grew up. Um, and so, you know, I was raised as a non-Indigenous kind of uh, Anglo-Protestant uh, uh, and, and very much insulated from critical conversations about Canadian colonialism. Uh, that wasn't until I went to university and started to learn uh, history from, from a non-nationalistic uh, perspective. Uh, and, and I met my partner, uh, whose father-in-law is a, a Kwakwakiwak uh, survivor of the Alert Bay Residential School off the northern tip uh, of Vancouver Island. And I started to become more um, cognizant of how you know, Patrick and I's uh, similar but overlapping histories um, set us up for very different kinds of lives um, and, and made me more committed to understanding um, you know, both the history of that relationship and what it would take to change that relationship. Um, and so you know, I think understanding that Canadian history is not just some abstract subject, it is also, it, you know, it shapes uh, our personal privileges and perspectives, um, you know, is a really important way to start uh, this conversation. Yeah. And I think, well, you know, what this means to me is that, you know, I feel that it is part of my job to do what I can to educate, you know, my fellow like white folks and settlers about this like throne of blood that we all sit on, right. That our class position and our wealth and our status is predicated on like the literal child kidnapping and child murder of the indigenous folks who lived here before my ancestors got here. And that it is not only our job to do the education part that it is, but it is our job to like tear down those structures and systems that led to these atrocities happening in the first place and to build new structures and systems that like both recognize our sins and, you know, help us all flourish together. And, and I think it's important, uh, you know, to discuss how people like you and I benefited from this, you know, Canada as a genocidal benefit, benefit, stealing product. Present tense, not past. <laughs> yes, not benefit. In the past, but benefit, present tense. Yeah, and that it's not just the, the fault of long ago politicians or, you know, a lot of people these days are trying to externalize this onto like the Catholic Church or the United Church or, you know, Duncan Campbell Scott or, you know, pick your, you know, sociopathic bureaucrat Yeah, that like, yeah, this is an ongoing project It's happening today. And that's 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 why I think it is so disgusting when someone like Jason Kenney gets up on his hind legs and delivers that, you know, that unsolicited seven minute soliloquy defending. I mean, he wasn't really defending Sir Johnny McDonald. He was just kind of like spraying <laughs> a, a wide swath at a wide swath of other historical villains. Um, but he was trying to obviously deflect attention from uh, Sir Johnny McDonald. And, and that clip that was uh, what, just from a, like a week or two ago, it's where the, we're going to talk about it. I'm going to play it uh, or at least a portion of it, but there is, uh, a clip from 2017 
Like this has been this issue of Sir Johnny McDonald and defending the legacy of Sir Johnny McDonald. This is not like a one-off for Jason Kenney. This is this has been a project of his again for a long time now. And and since uh, this video is like literally from 2017 when he was just coming on the scene just to set the stage, he is in front of Sir Johnny McDonald Junior High in Calgary. He has his, you know, famous blue truck behind him and he is cutting uh, this video. I'm here at Sir John A. McDonald Junior High School in Calgary. There's a campaign afoot to remove John McDonald's name from this building. It all started down in Ontario, where a teachers' union uh, is campaigning to remove the name of our founding Prime Minister from schools all across Ontario. Now there's copycats in Calgary demanding the same thing. In fact, there's somebody in the Calgary Herald who's campaigning to remove his name, saying that basically John A. McDonald is the moral equivalent of Adolf Hitler because he was associated with the residential school system, which it is, it is argued is somehow the moral equivalent to Hitler's Holocaust. Folks, we're getting our moral categories all confused here. Now, let there be no mistake. The residential school system was a terrible injustice, and many evil things happened within it. And Prime Minister Harper was right to apologize for it, and there's an ongoing need for rec reconciliation with our First Nations people. But to make that the moral equivalent of an attempt to exterminate the entire uh, Jewish people of Europe, the murder of six million people, an industrialized killing. I, th this suggests, I believe, that political correctness has gone way too far. Listen, John A. Macdonald was not a perfect man, but he was still a great man. As his modern biographer, uh, Richard Gwynn, has said, quotes, no Macdonald, no Canada. In other words, John A. Macdonald's audacity of vision is partly what made Confederation possible 150 years ago. It required bringing together all sorts of different factions that were going in their own direction. It required incredible patience and a bold vision, which he made reality with the creation of this great Northern Dominion from sea to sea. Uh, and so we must honor his vision. His, his central role in the creation of what has become one of the greatest, freest, and most prosperous democracies in all of human history. You know, as I say, John McDonald wasn't perfect, and neither were the people, uh, were the times in which he lived and governed, but nor is Canada perfect today. The point is we always strive to do better. But I reject this campaign of total defamation, of, of historical vandalism being directed at our founding prime minister. Did you, you probably didn't know, but, but John MacDonald in 1885 actually uh, called for the, uh, extending the vote uh, to, to women. He was 30, 40 years ahead of his time on that and so many other issues. Uh, and, and he was a, a classic Canadian in, in that he was a man that overcame tremendous adversity to become prime minister, born in a poor immigrant family pulled himself up by the bootstraps. Much of, itself, much of his education was just through his own uh, personal efforts, and he had the vision to build this dominion. So what concerns me is that the campaign to remove John McDonald's name from this and other schools across Alberta and Canada is being animated by the same philosophy which characterizes the, the Alberta NDP's new social studies curriculum. You know, if you go and read the outline, and we'll post a link below here, it's all about uh, the history of Canada as a history of oppression and injustice and colonialism. Uh, 
no presentation about Confederation or Canadian history or our founding fathers. Listen, I believe that we ought to face up to the darker moments in our history. As Minister of Immigration, I included many of those uh, injustices in the Guide for New Canadian <laughs> Citizens called Discover Canada. But we should teach those dark moments in a broader context, in the context of having created this remarkable free and prosperous democracy, which would not exist were it not for the leadership and vision of John McDonald. So I say, let's stop the historical vandalism. Let's stop this radical, out of control okay, political okay, okay. correctness. You get the point let's there. Uh, Sean, is that essentially genocide denial? <clears throat> There's a, there's a lot going on in, in that particular uh, quote. Um, a lot of deflection, a lot of downplaying, a lot of denying, um, and you know, essentially, Kenny, uh, like other uh, politicians, including Aaron O'Toole and others, are are using those kinds of denialist talking points to score uh, some political cheap political points to gain some momentum, um, you know, from a very narrow uh, political base. Um, and, and much of it is, is unfortunately propagating some, some mistruths um, and, and, and very hollow and shallow understandings of Canadian history that frankly are, are not helpful uh, for this particular, to, to be able to meet this particular moment. Well, let's. I mean, he, he spent four minutes talking about Sir Johnny Macdonald and his his dark, quote unquote, dark moments. Sure. What exactly uh, are Sir Johnny Macdonald's dark moments? They're pretty fucking dark, aren't they? Well, I mean, I think the way that I would, uh, as a historian, approach um, Kenny's speech there, which is very similar to the kinds of talking points uh, he's used uh, recently. Um, oh yeah, like like four years later, he was like pretty much he was stealing from himself from like four years ago. Because... And and you know every year he sends out a message on his on his website um, on Sir Johnny Macdonald Day, which is one of his political pet projects to make a thing. Um, and it's very it, you know the talking points are very uh, standard. So let me maybe go through a little bit and and help provide listeners with a, a different understanding, a bit more balanced understanding, so that they can make up their minds about how we deal with people like Macdonald and you know, politicians like Kenny who uncritically defend them. So, you know, Richard Gwynn, uh, one of uh, McDonald's biographers, uh, you know, has this quote that people like Kenny uh, like to cling to, and it's, no McDonald, no Canada. Um, and actually, I'd like to suggest that in some ways, that formulation is true, uh, but it is also unhelpful. So let me uh, tackle the issue this way. Um, McDonald, Johnny McDonald certainly was a nation builder. Right? He played a, a prominent role in diplomacy and bringing together a variety of colonial interests in the 1860s to establish the Dominion of Canada. No question. Um, as the country's first prime minister, um, he plays an instrumental role uh, in a number of different uh, national projects. Um, he was, you know, in his second time as a prime minister, that is, um, you know, after he gets kicked out for, for corruption and trying to build the railway. Um, he continues with the national policy, which focuses on finishing the transcontinental, transcontinental railway, uh, settlement, settlement of the West, particular kinds of tariffs that help build up uh, Canada. Uh, and so in, in many ways, this is what a lot of non-Indigenous people will have learned in their social studies curriculum, right? McDonald as the sort of founder of the country, uh, as an important nation builder. 
Uh, but what we need to remember is that, um, you know, McDonald certainly didn't pull himself in Canada up by its bootstraps, right? The, the other side of all of those different things is that they are predicated on ongoing settler colonialism and indigenous genocide, right? So McDonald is both a nation builder from one perspective, but also a nation destroyer uh, from another perspective. That is, you know, uh, Kenny says, oh, in 1885, McDonald extended the vote to, to women. Well, in the same year, 1885, uh, he goes to war against the Métis uh, and a number of different indigenous uh, allied communities, uh, essentially to arrest the West uh, and control over it and its resources um, for the benefit of ongoing settler colonialism and nation building. Um, in the same year, uh, he, uh, he institutes the illegal pass system, which uh, illegally restricted indigenous communities onto very small reserves so that they could not interfere with uh, the expansion of the West and, and new kinds of settlement. Uh, and in, 1880, uh, in the 1880s, uh, he helps uh, amend the Indian Act to ban particular kinds of cultural cer ceremonies, whether it's the Sundance on the prairies, the potlatch on the West Coast uh, that are um, very much in keeping with kinds of cultural genocide. Uh, and he, he, people need to remember that McDonald as prime minister, um, you know, prime ministers get to choose a portfolio for themselves. When uh, Trudeau Jr. Um, was first elected, he chose the Ministry of Youth, right? That was his sort of portfolio. What did John A. McDonald choose to be his key priority, right? He chose to be the superintendent general of Indian affairs to essentially quarterback Canada's colonial project. Uh, and in that role, he did all of those other things, but he was also the central architect of the residential school system. He listened to a number of different advocates in the church uh, and, and he uh, initiated um, an independent um, um, commission where he, he, he staffed with Nicholas Flood Davin, um, you know, his sort of supporter uh, that called for the establishment of a national system of residential schools premised on the manual labor schools for indigenous children, boarding schools that existed. Um, and, you know, even in the, as the first trial schools got started in the 1880s and we started to see poor conditions, disease, uh, poor conditions, you know, he continued to defend that project uh, as, as, a, as a key pillar of Canada's colonial project. And so, you know, I hear Kenny in the statement saying, you know, we need to, to understand his vision, his central role in nation building. And that's true. But we also need to understand that part of that vision uh, and that central role also meant, you know, he was a, that he was a nation builder, but he was also an architect of, uh, of genocide and, and uh, of Canadian colonialism at the same time. That's the part that Kenny and defenders of people like McDonald deliberately leave out to kind of uh, protect uh, McDonald as sort of a, a myth mythological figure that legitimizes ongoing uh, colonialism in Canada. Yeah. And when Kenny says that line from the biographer, right, like, no McDonald, no Canada, like, he really is, you know, threatening me with a good time, you know, like, I think we've got enough evidence to show that Canada has been built on a foundation of, you know, land theft and indigenous genocide. 
that like maybe it might be time to start having that conversation about what what wrapping up Canada might might be. Um, so I don't know. I don't think that's the conversation Kenny wants to have. Obviously, uh, all of his kind of proto separatist uh, meanderings aside, I think he's still very much invested in Canada continuing as a political project. Sure, but, but it does raise the question, right? Yeah, I mean, it raises the question. I'll maybe uh, maybe go off script. Uh, for for a minute and quote Conrad Black, um, <laughs> somewhat out of, uh, out of keeping. Um, but you know Conrad Black in defending McDonald has said, well, if McDo- if you attack McDonald, um, if you attack the legitimacy of McDonald, then you attack the legitimacy of Canada. Um, and I think in that Conrad Black is correct. Um, in that part of w- what is happening is challenging um, a certain way of operating uh, of Canada, right? That, that Canada uh, says it is, you know, a great multicultural, peaceful, tolerant country, uh, but for Indigenous people, uh, and they have, have constantly said this, this isn't a new revelation. You know, the people that were fighting against Canadian forces in the War of 1885 were making that quite clear, that uh, as Leanne Simpson has said, Canada has always been a death dance for Indigenous people uh, in, ver- in various ways. So, you know, the idea uh, here is very much challenging what Canada currently is and how it operates um, and perhaps giving it an opportunity to do differently, to to live up to some of its commitments um, in, in a bit of a different way. But we can certainly get into that in a bit. Yeah, like if the sunny, rosy Canada that, it, you know, that, that this image that it has of itself, like if, if you want to make that real and turn Canada into the nation that, it, you know, talks about itself, you know, and what it sees in the funhouse mirror, then great. But like... You know, we have 150 some years of evidence to show that it definitely does not uh, operate as that kind of country. And, um, you know, that clip that I originally played, that's from 2017. But again, he really kind of stole from it and and reused a lot of those talking points from his, again, his unsolicited seven minute soliloquy defending Sir Johnny MacDonald by kind of casting aspersions on everyone. And I think this is a, a useful clip for a couple of reasons. One, let's talk about these other historical figures. But two, it's what he brings up at the end to uh, like about the curriculum. I think Canada is worth... Uh celebrating. I think Canada is a great historical achievement. It is a country that people all around the world seek to join as new Canadians. It is an imperfect country, but it is still a great country, just as John MacDonald was an imperfect man, but was still a great leader. Uh, If we want to get into uh, cancelling every uh, figure in our history who had, uh, who who took positions on, on issues at the time that we now judge harshly and rightly, uh, in, in, in historical retrospective. But if that's the new standard, then um, I think almost the entire founding leadership of our country gets cancelled. Tommy Douglas, who recommended the use of eugenics uh, to um, uh, sterilize the weak, as he said, uh, to, uh, if we talk about mem- members of the, fa- fa- the famous five uh, heroes of Canadian feminism and the fight for equality for women, uh, some of them were advocates of uh, eugenics that we would now regard uh, as deplorable. So uh, if we go full f- force into cancel culture, then we're canceling uh, uh, most, if not all, of our history. Instead, I think we should learn from our history. We should learn uh, from our achievements, but also our failures. Uh, Canada is doing that, uh, just as we 
uh, as Prime Minister Harper made the official apology for the uh, terrible injustice of the Indian residential school system, just as the Government of Canada uh, provided uh, over $3.5 billion in, in compensation um, to re residential school survivors as a, a symbol of, of restitution. Uh, and just as Canada has addressed other uh, historic injustices, uh, which we seek to reflect in the draft uh, K-12, uh, K-6, pardon me, social studies curriculum um, in far more profound ways than ever before. So I, I think it's much better that we learn from uh, our history, including uh, those periods of great injustice, uh, without seeking to cancel our history. I think we need to know more about it. So just to be clear, uh, I am fully prepared to cancel both the Famous Five and, and Tommy Douglas. We have a statue of Emily Murphy in this town. She is, is an absolute supervillain. One of the most like evil white supremacists to be ever given a massive media platform, like literally like the proto-Faith Goldie uh, of her day. And, and Tommy Douglas wasn't just a big believer in eugenics. He ran roughshod over First Nations and Métis sovereignty in northern Saskatchewan when he was premier uh, there. And, you know, he's generally credited as this person who brought universal health care to Canada. But it re really couldn't have been done without Ukrainian communists across the prairies, uh, who definitely do not get a big enough uh, chunk of the credit there. But Sean, the reason why I think that that clip is important is, is Kenny gets into it, right? He, he talks about curriculum and how you know how he and the UCP are allegedly going to do a better job of teaching K to 6 students about residential schools. Sean, who is is Chris Champion and and what is he currently doing for the Alberta government? Yeah, just just a couple of quick points. I mean the the first, you know, is that Kenny's talking about canceling people. Hmm. Um, canceling McDonald. And I think actually, you know, what's going on is that there is um, an opportunity uh, to not uncritically celebrate uh, people like McDonald in public, right? And to give them sort of honorific titles uh, and and statues and memorializations and commemorations. That's what's happening. Um, you know, McDonald isn't being canceled from history. Uh, it's not even about erasing history. You know, if a McDonald statue comes down or uh, a school named after McDonald uh, is renamed, I don't stop talking about these people uh, in my classes. Um, you know, same with other kind of complicated figures in history, be it Emily Murphy or Tom, Tommy Douglas, uh, Wilfrid Laurier. Um, as a historian, my job isn't to pass judgment necessarily. Uh, it is to teach sort of a wholesome understanding, um, or maybe not wholesome, a, a fuller appreciation of the past <laughs> and its complexities. And I think that for so long, that has not been the way that people like Kenny understand history, right? That for them, history is a tool of propaganda and patriotism and nation building. Um, and that doesn't jive with um, complicated appreciations and, and understandings of different, of different figures. Um, and so one of the things that you see in the curriculum is that um, Kenny uh, has surrounded himself, you know, like with, with a variety of, of other kind of nefarious figures um, that are dealing in kind of more white supremacist understandings of, of history and, and the uses of curriculum, uh, certainly in line with sort of a, a Trumpian approach to patriotic education, as he would call it. Uh, and you start to see people like, uh, before we get to Chris Champion, let's talk about Paul Bunner for a second. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, Kenny uh, said in that last clip, 
you know, just like uh, Stephen Harper apologized for in, in terms of the residential school system. Well, you know, Harper didn't write that speech, right? Paul Bunner did, right? He was his personal speechwriter, um, who then became a personal speechwriter for Kenny, um, who uh, in the last couple of years, uh, it, it's come to light um, in comments that Bunner made on record himself, that they made the apology hoping that the situation would go away and that he personally feels residential schools, uh, residential schooling is a bogus genocide. That's, that's the, from the person who wrote Canada's apology. Okay. Um, and, and Kenny surrounds himself with people like this. Um, you know, another one uh, is Chris Champion who holds similar beliefs to Bunner and, 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 and Kenny and, and kind of works as sort of a, not to be confused with the, with the pro wrestler, Chris Champion. Uh, he, he's kind of like a pseudo historian Right? He's the founder of the Dorchester Review, a non-peer-reviewed popular history journal that kind of caters to a kind of far-right audience and, and sort of propagates many of these different talking points. Um, and, and he's essentially Kenny's brain worker. Um, uh, he, uh, it, it's funny that Kenny, in the first uh, clip that you, you um, uh, played, he says he was you know, uh, writing Canada's citizenship guide, Discover Canada. Uh, you know, that was actually Chris Champion's kind of brainchild that he worked with Kenny uh, in, well, Kenny was the, the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration. And if you read uh, Discover Canada, you can Google it. It's freely available. Um, it's essentially, unsurprisingly, uh, a kind of very sugar-coated, rose-colored glasses view of Canadian history that tries to minimize any of, you know, the story of colonization, right? And it, it kind of promotes Canada as, you know, this like, two founding nations coming together to overcome obstacles to build a great country um, and says little about, you know, the fact that that was also predicated on, on slavery uh, and the enslavement of, of African people, uh, as well as, you know, ongoing settler colonialism. So again, you know, these folks have a long track record of presenting pretty wacky uh, and, and misleading um, and one-sided views of Canadian history as tools of propaganda and patriotism. And it is Chris Champion, uh, who Kenny brought in to help revamp the social studies curriculum, the K-4 curriculum, um, which again is very Trumpian, very patriotic, um, you know, motivated uh, in a way to downplay um, you know, the kind of unsavory nature of Canadian nation building, right? It's, it's as I was saying before in the McDonald, uh, my, my kind of framing of McDonald, it's really presenting that one-sided version of Canadian history uh, rather than a, a kind of fuller appreciation of, of really what happened, giving people the truth so that they're better prepared in the present, um, you know, to do the work of building a better society uh, for the future. That's certainly not what Kenny uh, and, and conservative ideologues like O'Toole, Champion, Bunner, etc., want to do. And so they're using... Uh, the curriculum uh, revamp as an opportunity to kind of restructure it in a way, unfortunately for Albertans, uh, that will prepare them, uh, will not prepare them to deal with, you know, the very pressing problems in Indigenous settler relations today. Yeah. And, and the reason why I also bring up Chris Champion is that, you know, under the handle of the historical journal that he runs, you mentioned it, the, the Dorchester Review, he replied to a news story about the 215 dead children found in a mass grave at a residential school by saying, quote, the cause of death was usually tuberculosis or some other disease. Yeah. And I mean, you know, here we kind of see a denialist talking point. 
in the sense that many indigenous children did die of, uh, of tuberculosis. Um, and tuberculosis was a, a common um, a common way that many Canadians died. This is sort of what he's doing. Uh, the problem, of course, is that he's using that piece out of context. Um, you know, Indigenous children often died of tuberculosis at the rate of almost 20%, uh, which was 19%, uh, as, I think as much as 19% more than the mortality rate uh, in, in the rest of the population, because for the most part, non-Indigenous people weren't inmates um, against their will in residential schools. So yeah, like why were so many indigenous children getting and then dying of tuberculosis at rates well above the 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 background rate of the population? Well, yeah, like you said, they were kidnapped and put into terrible conditions by the state, right? Yeah, and those conditions were very well known. Um, you know, if anyone looks at the Department of Indian Affairs records from 1883 to the 1910s, right, uh, they will see uh, you know the constant references to death and disease uh, related to poor conditions. Um, you know, even the Department of Indian Affairs own medical officer, this guy named Dr. Peter Bryce, tried to blow the whistle on, on these poor conditions uh, and, and demand that the department do differently. Uh, and he was basically ignored, right? Um, because the department would rather focus on the well-intentioned nature of the system overall and the benefits that it was having in, in destabilizing indigenous communities, which supported continued colonialism and nation building. That was the whole thing, right? It's not like all of a sudden in 2015, people realized that residential schools were bad. Like they, the very first report on these trial schools in 1883-84 talked about these issues. It's just that for the most part, Canadian uh, officials had a vested interest uh, in keeping these schools going as one part of the larger colonial project. Um, and so it's somewhat repugnant to me that people like Champion, uh, who again is in charge of you know, curriculum revamp, in, you know, trying to get children, you know, to learn about the past. I mean, you know, it, it's subsequently come out uh, that, you know, they, they don't want to focus on the negative. It's too sad, right? Um, <laughs> these, again, are, are ways of, you know, um, integrating denialism, residential school denialism into Alberta's curriculum. And uh, to, to me, uh, it is unconscionable. Yeah, I mean, for research purposes, I went and looked at, you know, this guy's Twitter account. And it's like, it's like if like a 4chan dude, like ran, uh, like a history journal, like it, it seems to exist to primarily trigger the libs, uh, not as a as a, you know, something that is interested in a full and thorough examination of the history of Canada. Um, you know, did you know about this guy before he was selected by the Alberta government to advise on curriculum? Had you run into him in like historical circles? No, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think he's really involved in historical circles. I think, you know, he has a toehold, it would seem as a visiting uh, researcher at Queens. Um, you know, I think Queens university probably wants to answer for that. Um, I would, I would, I would stress and, and uh, you know, challenge them to answer why they would, would be having someone who's trolling dead indigenous children on Twitter. Um, you know, I, I, I don't get it. Uh, I, I do ha had heard of his name before, right? He is, um, as I said, part of this kind of conservative cabal of uh, politicians who are trying to use uh, a kind of white supremacist, overtly nationalist view of history as a political tool. Mm. Um, and you see his names on, you know, all sorts of strange open letters, you know, defending 
um, you know, pretty weird positions. Uh, you know, I had heard of the Dorchester Review. You know, they published residential school denialism, uh, you know, before. Um, this is certainly not a new thing for the Dorchester Review. Um, and, you know, I, I had heard that he was involved in, in trying to do some research about who created Discover Canada, uh, you know, who was consulting on that particular project. Because you need to remember, that is still the official citizenship guide. Um, mm, thanks, and, liberals. Yeah, they haven't fixed it, eh? <laughs> no, and, and you know, it continues to kind of misrepresent Canadian history um, and, 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 you know, ensure that new Canadians are not prepared to deal with you know, uh, revelations like uh, what happened in, in Kamloops uh, last week. Um, because they don't know. They're not being taught about these kinds of things, right? Um, you know, if, if Canada is just like this rosy country, then why are all of these issues, you know, continuing uh, to come up, right? Um, so I think that, that, you know, folks like Champion are playing an unfortunate role in ensuring that Canadians, in this case, Albertans specifically in the curriculum, um, are, are kind of um, at a disadvantage in terms of being aware of Canada's history and how that history can be used, you know, to create uh, a better province. Um, and, and that is unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, and he just continued to double down, uh, you know, in his, you know, he, he tweeted, you know, quote, in many cases, their parents wanted them there, there being residential schools. That's why this should be based on research, not the politics and cashola of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Yeah, I mean, you know, undercutting the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is also another denialist kind of uh, fascination. Uh, we saw that with people uh, like Lynn Baek, right, who even as she was resigning or retiring, sorry, from, from the Senate um, in January, kind of said, no, I stand by the fact that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is not, uh, you know, it doesn't talk enough about the good things about residential schools. Like, what a wild argument, you know, like, we need to be talking about the positive things of a genocidal school system. Um, you know, th again, that's just trying to um, to misrepresent um, particular aspects of what was going on. Um, you know, to to delegitimize truth and reconciliation, to insulate themselves from participating in the hard work of decolonization uh, and reconciliation. Um, which, again, you know, they're trying to protect the colonial status quo. That is their goal, and yeah. they're using history and curriculum to kind of insulate themselves and others, um, you know, to, you know, to ensure that that doesn't gain any momentum. Yeah. So speaking of protecting the status, uh, the colonial status quo, we can't have this conversation with, and, you know, I, I know you're a history professor, Sean, you probably read books to learn about history, but I, I'm just a fucking idiot podcaster and Dude. I learn most of my history uh, through statues. So uh, could you perhaps maybe inform me and my audience about why it's so important that we preserve the statues of, uh, you know, these colonial, these colonial founders of Canada as important educational tools? Right. I mean, as a historian, I have a troubled relationship to statues. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, <laughs> I know you're being facetious, but I, I, I do, I do think that a lot of people make a, a key um, mistake that they assume that statues are history, right? When in reality, um, history and statues are very different, right? Statues are commemorations of the past. Um, you know, they're supposed to be things that people look up to. Um, um, but in, in reality, you know, statues and commemorative practices like naming streets and schools and things 
are really just snapshots, right? Um, uh, but but as historians like Cecilia Morgan have, have shown us, you know, commemorations change over time as society changes. Um, the values that we hold and, and want to pass on to new generations and have people, uh, you know, look up to, you know, they change over time, just like our understandings of, of history change over, over time. We can't change the past, but history, you know, is, is really a, a, a recording, an interpretation of the events of the past that, that change. And I know that, uh, you know, I teach that in, in my classes, uh, but I know that there's sort of a disjuncture between how many people, you know, who don't get to come and take my classes or the classes of my colleagues understand history uh, and, and the way that the historical community understands uh, history. Um, and so I, I think we just need to kind of tease out history from statues. Um, and as that's what I said, is like if a McDonald's statue comes down, you know, he doesn't get erased from history. I still teach about him. Uh, but that deliberate commemoration, that lionization of McDonald as an uncomplicated figure worthy of, you know, uncritical celebration, that's what we're challenging, right? And, and I think that, you know, in, in this moment when a lot of statues are, are coming down, um, you know, it's an opportunity to reflect and, and rethink. And, and here I want to actually give some credit to the, to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, they talk about this, right? Like this isn't coming out of nowhere. In volume six of the TRC's final report, uh, they say, uh, quote, we believe the true reconciliation can take place only through a reshaping of a shared national collective memory of who we are and what has come before. The youth of this country are taking up this challenge. They certainly are, right? As we're seeing, you know, day after day, every time I refresh my browser, you know, young people are kind of re-articulating what they want that collective memory of their university or of their city, of their town square looks like. Um, so the TRC continues, they say, reshaping national history is a public process, one that happens through discussion, sharing, and commemoration. As Canadians gather in public spaces to share their memories, beliefs, and ideas about the past with others, right, and, and their politics too, I would argue, our collective understanding of the present and future is formed. So public history, they say, is dynamic. It changes over time as new understandings, dialogues, artistic expressions, and commemorations emerge. Although public history can simply reinforce the colonial story of how Canada began with European settlement and became a nation, which Kenny, Champion, Bunner, etc., would defend, the TRC says the process of remembering the past together also invites people to question that limited version of history. And I mean, I think that's really at the heart of what we're reckoning with uh, the last week uh, and in the years since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You know, we now see these statues uncritically celebrating people like McDonald or Ryerson or, you know, other figures differently. And we're, 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 we're reflecting on whether we want to continue with that practice or whether we want to form a new kind of collective memory uh, that gives us different values and, and aspirations to aspire to. And Sean, I know you're a historian. You're not like here for the like, uh, you know, direct action and praxis and stuff. But I, I think there is something I do want to say about this, which is that like tearing down statues is broadly speaking, you know, a good thing. It, it obviously cannot be the only thing when it comes to, uh, you know, reconciliation, if we want to use that word uh, or, or um you know, a meaningful relationship between uh, white people and, and indigenous folks. But I, I think I am all for statues being torn down. I think 
it is uh, an important bit of norm breaking that shows that when people get together, they can just do shit and, and uh, the potential to mobilize even uh, more folks. Sean, what's your take on the kind of political tactic of tearing down statues? Um, you know, for me, I think the way that I try and come at this is that people will say taking down statues are politically motivated. And I would just simply point out as a historian that the erection of statues and monuments and other commemorative practices are also politically motivated, right? And it, what's really going on is a is a grappling with and a, and a reckoning of those political motivations. Do the political motivations of the 60s when Johnny McDonald statues were being erected to, you know, facilitate a kind of um, reconciliation, if you were, between French and English, uh, you know, tensions in Canada around the time of the centennial, do those political motivations um, jive with, you know, the political motivations of today? Uh, and pr- I would say priorities um, and, you know, um, a, a continual reckoning you know, if we, the, the statues we put up today in 2021, um, you know, might not work for us in 2031 or 2051. And there will be a reckoning uh, of, of different figures at different times for different purposes, um, articulating different priorities. That's all okay. That's how commemoration works. Um, that's how, you know, a, a mature understanding of how history functions. I mean, it changes over time as we, as we, learn new things as historians. Um, you know, like the, the role of the historian is to continuously advance knowledge about the past, learn different things. Uh, and as we learn different things and communicate that to wider audiences, you know, um, you know, we can have different feelings about history and subsequently commemorations and things like statues. So I'm, I'm certainly not opposed um, to the removal of statues. Um, I guess I would be remiss, you know, make sure everybody does it safely. And uh, I think I posted on Twitter the the popular mechanics article from last summer <laughs> about how to take down a statue safely with science. Um, you know, and I think, you know, the people that are, are clutching pearls about statues to enslavers, imperialists, and, um, you know, the architects of residential schools might want to look in the mirror about what those, what the defense of those statues says about them and the kind of society they want to see. Um, and, and that lively, healthy debate um, can actually be productive and helpful. And we will link to that handy popular mechanics guide on how to safely tear down a statue in uh, the show notes. Uh, excellent point there, Sean. I mean, there's a couple of statues in, in my town that uh, in Edmonton that I think make sense to have uh, on the ground and thrown in the river. You know, you've got the very obvious one of Winston Churchill and the town square being named after Winston Churchill, a man who was responsible for the murder and genocide of what, two to three billion Bengalis, uh, as well as just being an overall kind of wretched person to anyone who wasn't white. Uh, we've got the statue of Emily Murphy, uh, again, like proto faith Goldie proto, like white supremacist propagandist, you know, par extremists uh, in Winnipeg. Is there any statues you've got your eye on? Well, I mean, you know, Winnipeg is an interesting city in the sense that it is a, a site of conflict and tension. You know, there are, um, as a newcomer relatively to, to Manitoba, you know, there are a lot of public commemorations of, uh, of Indigenous leaders, of Métis leaders like Louis Riel, for example. Um, and yet there are also, you know, um, Bishop, Bishop Grandin uh, Boulevard um, and, you know, schools named after uh, Ryerson, 
um, neighborhoods named after Garnet Wolseley, uh, who was a British um, uh, general who was sent out by Macdonald to kind of oversee colonization uh, in, in, in Manitoba uh, and to, to set the stage for westward expansion. Um, and so, you know, everywhere has, you know, history that needs to be reckoned with. And for those who think, you know, where does this stop? You know, um, you know, it's a slippery slope. I mean, I think this is just like, it's a constant process of reevaluating the past and its use in the present to aspire to different kinds of futures. That's all a good thing, actually. Uh, and the debates uh, that emerge out of them can be quite, <laughs> um, you know, divisive at times. They can seem um, very uh, emotional, but I think they're, they're nevertheless important. And as I was saying, I hope it didn't get cut off there, that is what the TRC has asked Canadians to do, not just about residential school history, but about nationalist history generally, right? Like we basically can have a history that reflects what we want to aspire to, or we can continuously be tethered to these kinds of toxic nostalgias that, you know, cling to, uh, you know, kind of colonial history in a way that tries to legitimize and shore up the privilege and profit of the colonial status quo that is uh, distributed very unequally to, um, to non-Indigenous people. Um, I think, you know, uh, this is a moment of reckoning and reckoning doesn't have to be a bad thing. Um, yeah, this is a total aside, but one of the most like low-key racist things that kind of exist as as statues and commemorations is any commemoration of Canada's involvement in the Boer War. There's a there's a statue in the Beltline in Calgary. There's a statue um outside of the uh, Nova Scotia legislature that also celebrates this. Like the Boer War on the English side was like literally the invention of concentration camps and the like murder of like what 30,000 Boers and their families and like 30,000 uh, you know, black South Africans. Well, um, I mean, and I mean, you know, just while we're putting, you know, targets up on, on the board for, for reevaluation, I mean, even certain things, I mean, Cecil Rhodes, um, schools have been, have been, um, uh, identified, right. Things that uncritically celebrate British imperialism. And this is the hard part because British imperialism is very much connected to Canadian nationalism, right. Um, the way that, um, Canada's founding fathers, right. Um, legitimized establishing a new Canadian dominion, right, was by linking it to the British Empire. And so it's not uh, uncommon to see statues of Queen Victoria, right, the, the British monarch at the time uh, that, that Canada was founded and expanded in, in the late 19th, mid to late 19th century. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, I just rode my bike the other day past the, uh, the legislative building in, in Manitoba, um, which has a statue of Queen Victoria prominently displayed uh, outside. <laughs> you know, like, again, these are deliberate symbol, symbols chosen to legitimize Canada's colonial project uh, and to give it a kind of gravitas, right? Um, and I think th those kinds of symbols, uncritically celebrating that, um, are being reevaluated in this moment. And as I said, I think that that is a good thing. Yes. Uh, I had this whole section in the notes on Canada Day and and like is Canada Day canceled? And I, I think I don't think we have to belabor the point here. Um, I definitely am not going to be making any special effort to celebrate Canada this day this year. Nor have I really kind of since Canada 150 and the, the counter programming that went on. But you know, in the wake of you know 215 dead children uh, found in a mass grave 
I, I don't think that that is a thing that uh, is worth getting excited about. Well, I mean, just just quickly on this point, I mean, whether Canada Day is cancelled is certainly not up to me. Uh, <laughs> I do know that I don't know more, right? Um, the, the the group um, that kind of came to prominence prominence in 2012, 2013 uh, has called for that. There have been a number of different um, actions planned uh, in and around Canada Day, particularly uh, around Canada 150, kind of countering that kind of overtly uh, patriotic, nationalistic kind of celebration. And I mean, it will be interesting to me uh, how this gets handled. Uh, I'm, I'm certain that there will be some allies that, that don't choose not to mark Canada Day in the way that perhaps they have done in the past. Um, you know, I'll point simply, uh, I don't know how many listeners uh, are, are Winnipeg Jets fans, um, but, you know, just recently, um, you know, the way that they handled the announcement of the 215 uh, you know, the unearthing by the Tecumloops, Tecumseh uh, Nation, um, you know, they, they held a hockey game right on, on just Monday night. Uh, and they had um, Don uh, Amaro, uh, a sort of indigenous country singer, uh, give a very somber kind of haunting rendition of O Canada, um, which, I, you know, I thought was sort of an interesting way of kind of handling uh, how, how you, how do you make an announcement about, uh, what happened in Kamloops, and then transition to the national anthem, and and that was, you know, it was it was a moment of kind of un, unsettled awkwardness that I think you know Canada very much could benefit uh, from having. But very quickly, Canada Day, I mean, just like John A. Macdonald and all of these kinds of nationalistic uh, things that people are defending to the death. I mean, Canada Day is actually a pretty recent uh, event. You know, people think, oh, Canada Day have, must have been celebrated from you know, uh, 1867 onwards. And in reality, just a, a quick comment, um, you know, it originally starts as Dominion Day in 1879. It really doesn't get going um, as, a, as, a, as a celebration. Um, it's not really celebrated or marked again until 1917 in the midst of the war where nationalism was used to kind of whip up and defend what was going on. And then it really wasn't until the 50s, specifically the 60s and the 1967 a centennial of Canada, that Canada Day becomes a more regular uh, activity, as a lot of historians have, have sort of written about. Um, in fact, Canada Day, as you know, we you know have seen it being celebrated, really wasn't until uh, you know renamed until 1982. Um, and so, when you think about it like that, that Canada Day as a sort of like overtly nationalistic birthday cakes, you know, big celebration, fireworks. Um, you know, it, it's sort of a more recent tradition. Um, you know, I think it lends that historical awareness lends um, a kind of credence to perhaps reflect on what its meaning is moving forward. And that I think is, is a productive and healthy conversation for people to be having, uh, certainly. Yeah, though, I'm sure, uh, aren't there like a bunch of weirdos who want to bring back Dominion Day? <laughs> I would imagine Chris Champion, I think I saw him talking uh, about wanting to bring back Dominion Day, which is kind of funny because it really wasn't, you're wanting to bring back something that wasn't really celebrated. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'm sure Jason, if I search Jason Kenny's Twitter history, he probably has yeah. called Canada Day Dominion Day. He loves using that word Dominion. Uh, it's one yeah, of because, his like $5 you know, settler colonial words. Yeah, and because they want, they actually don't want to to, to sever that connection 
to the British Empire and British imperialism because they use it as a way of legitimizing the colonial status quo. That's why they're, they're you know, like, why does Jason Kenney care about, like, Johnny McDonald? It's because they use those symbols and, you know, and, and, and you know, kind of mythologized version of history as a, as a, leg- a tool of legitimacy for political reasons. And, you know, yeah, they love Dominion Day, but they don't really know anything about it. Um, you know, it's not like it's some great, like, deep, meaningful event. Um, it's just, you know, uh, a cool political thing that they try and do to harken back to a past that doesn't exist. Yeah, that's true. And we should be wary, should be wary of, of all those kinds of, you know, um, cheap tricks uh, used to shore up the colonial status quo. And, and as we've been talking about, you know, history is often misused for those purposes um, and has a lot of supporters amongst, you know, conservative ideologues, sure, uh, but also people in the middle and some foggy people on the left too. You know, um, it, you know, it's it's a way of kind of legitimizing positions rather than trying to learn honestly from what happened before, so that we can try and do differently in the present. And that's the kind of history that I'm I'm trying to advocate for. I think our, our time here is is going to soon come to a close, but I do uh, have one last question for you, and that's that's around like your status as, you know, a settler who, or as a white person who does research and writing on indigenous issues. And like, do you have advice for, you know, other historians or journalists or folks who want to write about Canada's settler colonial past and how, you know, we can approach and learn about this history in a respectful and authentic manner? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly want wouldn't want to present myself as someone who has it all figured out <laughs> or has a ready-made blueprint for this. You know, I think, you know, the lessons that I've learned in working with, you know, Indigenous community uh, members and, and colleagues um, is to try to always listen and learn, right? Commit to um, always, you know, trying to learn more and being open. Um, and, and realize that that kind of learning process can be pretty uncomfortable at times. And that's okay. That's, that's okay. It shows you that you're actually learning new things. You're reevaluating yourself and your position in relationship to new knowledge and modeling that, um, whether it be, you know, in our, in our movements, uh, in our classrooms, in our communities, uh, is something that is certainly healthy and, and productive. Um, and, you know, always, always learn. Murray Sinclair, who is the, the chair of the TRC, um, has said, you know, like education in terms of residential schools, uh, you know, got us into this mess, but education is going to get us out. And, and I think that that requires people from all political spectrums, on all sides of the political spectrum, to be honest, uh, to commit to that kind of education and relearning, um, uh, you know, their own history, as you started off by talking about. Um, you know, the history of Canada and colonialism um, in, in ways that can help bring us together to figure out what we want that present uh, to look like and, and, and ideally what we want the future, um, you know, to be. Um, and if we can do that, try and put our egos aside to the best of our ability and enter into building new relationships with people, you know, through learning and listening to each other, I think we're going to be much better off than if we are trying to double down on protecting the colonial status quo through investing ourselves in weird mythology uh, like Jason Kenney 
and others are doing in, in the aftermath of, of what's been unve unveiled and, and understood uh, in Kamloops this last week. Thanks for coming on, Sean. I'm a big fan of your work, and this has been a great chat and a conversation that uh, I'm really pleased that we had. How can people find you on the internet and uh, follow along with the work that you do? I have a, a website. Uh, it's my my name, Sean Carlton, uh, S-E-A-N Carlton, C-A-R-L-E-T-O-N uh, dot com. And you can find me on Twitter at Sean Carlton. Great. So that's all for this episode, folks. I think we've gone a little long, so I won't belabor the point about asking for money. But if you like what we do, please support us. Uh, there's a link in the show notes, and it really helps us out. Uh, if I got something wrong or you need to get a hold of me, I'm very easy to find. I'm on Twitter at, at Duncan Kinney, and you can email me at duncank at progressalberta.ca. Thanks to Cosmic Family Communist for our theme. Thanks to Sean for coming on, and thank you for listening. Goodbye.